Hello and welcome to the Simungo's podcast. This is episode 67 and today's talk from the Pocketbook of Emergency Medicine is on status epilepticus and you can watch the video in its entirety for free at www.continuous.com forward slash LP forward slash St. Mungo's. Now our speaker Brandon Foreman from the University of Cincinnati joined me on a call to give his top five pearls of wisdom. I hope you enjoy this episode. So I've got Brandon Foreman here with me today. We've uh, just managed to get him on a call. We're absolutely delighted. And we're going to play his talk, obviously, from the Pocketbook of Emergency Medicine. Um, We've got you here, Brandon, to give your top five pearls of wisdom for emergency clinicians. But just before we come to that, do you mind just giving our listeners just a little bit of background to you, where you are in the world, what your professional background is, and if you feel comfortable doing so, maybe an interesting fact about yourself. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I'm an associate professor of neurology and rehabilitation medicine at the University of Cincinnati. My background is in neurology and neurocritical care and neurocritical uh, uh, care EEG. And my focus clinically is largely on brain monitoring. So we have a, a comprehensive multimodality brain monitoring program here at UC for largely patients with severe TBI. And we've been focusing a lot on how to use that data and how to best care for patients in an individualized way. Uh, That's my background and where I'm at. Um, An interesting fact about myself uh, is, I suppose I've deep dived into the uh, hobby of espresso making. And why that's interesting in relation to what I do, uh, kind of career-wise, is it's all pressure, volume, and flow. And that ends up being a lot of what we deal with in brain injury. So it's got kind of a nice tie-in and really oddly intriguing from a physiological standpoint. Also, coffee is delicious. Uh, absolutely is. Uh, love it. Well, look, thank you very much, Brandon. Well, look, do you mind if you give us your top five pearls of wisdom for emergency clinicians? Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. So as I mentioned, I'm a neurointensivist, so my bias is going to be brain injury when it comes to these top five tips. And a lot of them come from the world of being in the ICU and pushing those forward a little bit into those patients who are in your recess bay who are coming in uh, with some acute problem that's giving them a neurodeficit. So my, my top five tips, number one is seemingly simple, but the pupillary exam is such a critical, critical thing. All right, obviously, this is a critical component of your primary survey for your TBI patients, for your brain injured patients. But one thing that's kind of not really recognized all that much is that clinicians only agree on the reactivity of a pupil about two-thirds of the time. That's sort of scary, right? Consider the implications for surgical intervention by your neurosurgeons, right? Non-reactive pupils. They may not take that patient to surgery as a result. So having only a two-thirds of agreement is, is sort of a problem. So my top tip here is if you've got access to it, quantitative pupillometry is incredibly, incredibly important. It enhances the inter agreement and it uncovers reactive pupils that are subtle enough that you may not recognize them or improvement in a pupil in relation to hyperosmotic therapy, which is sort of a related tip there. Give a medication, see if there's a response that actually may push 
uh, the uh, the care of that patient forward uh, when initially there's a, a thought that intervention may be futile. So so use quantitative pupillometry if you've got access to it. It's it's actually really important. My next tip is more of a wonky neurological thing, and that's lateral gaze. So you've got a patient in front of you, they've got a neurological deficit, and they're staring in one direction or another. Now, this is an easy one in terms of how I think we've all been taught, but because it completely changes the strategy for care based on whether or not this patient has a focal lesion, such as a stroke, or is actively seizing, this becomes a really important tip. So here's a simple way to think about it. Patients look at their lesion, fine, but it's a little conceptually difficult. Think about it like this. They look away from their deficits when there's a stroke, almost like they're embarrassed of that weakness on their right side. So they're gonna be looking away from that. But when the brain's activated abnormally, think seizures, you look away from the seizure, right? But you look towards your deficits, or if you've got some twitching or other movements, you're looking toward that. So stroke looks away from the deficit. Stroke uh, seizure rather looks toward the deficit. So just a, a simple way to think about that when you've got someone with lateral gaze. Tip number three, speaking of stroke, patients with fluent aphasia can be a real challenge in the emergency environment. So there's multiple kinds of aphasia, but fluent aphasia is something that we see after stroke predominantly, but can be seen in other things, but it produces this nonsensical speech, a word salad. And patients infer the fact no one can understand what they're saying, and they might get more and more anxious, upset, talking quickly or trying to speak quickly. And several times a year, this mimics psychiatric disorders and patients get triaged for an acute manic episode or bipolar disorder that's decompensated. So when you've got someone who's just talking absolute gibberish, the thing to do is look for a subtle focal sign. So here's the tip. We normally do drift testing and stroke, right? Everyone's comfortable holding up the arms and seeing if those arms are stable. But do this, have the patient close their eyes, have them shake their head from side to side. This distracting maneuver actually uncovers subtle finger curl or even pronation in one arm versus the other. And that's critical. Psychiatric patients shouldn't have that sort of focal motor drift. The other related tip is those patients who are doing word salad, they can't repeat and they can't name objects usually. Psychiatric patients will transiently cooperate, as you know, with some of these critical language tasks. So those two things can help distinguish patients and get them triaged where they need to go. The fourth tip is that all that shakes is not seizure. Uh, you know, generalized tonic-clonic seizures in the emergency room are sort of the maculopapular rash of the dermatology world. And so it's easy to see shaking and assume that it's a generalized convulsion. Yeah, that's okay, a lot of times it is, right? But generalized shaking can result from two other things that are really critical. And the first is a rapidly expanding mass lesion. And the other is sudden hypoperfusion, like syncope. Where this is critical for the emergency department is that an expansive mass lesion, so think a suddenly enlarging ICH right in front of you, right? Or a suddenly enlarging subdural hematoma, 
uh, a sudden rebleed of a suspected aneurysmal subarachnoid hemorrhage. It actually gives you generalized, or can give you generalized shaking that almost looks like rigors or shivering. So it's very low amplitude, it's very fast. It looks exactly like you would see in someone with an acute infection with rigors. So keep this in mind in the right clinical context where there's a stroke activation, the patient comes in and suddenly they're shaking all over the place. That's concerning for rapidly expansile mass lesion. And syncope can similarly do some very funny things. If you've got someone who syncopizes or has a story that suggests syncope, they can have extensor posturing, large amplitude, irregular generalized shaking. It looks exactly like a seizure. So put that in your differential in some cases, depending on the context. Rapid imaging might be really important here. And then if you've got someone where it's a question of seizures, maybe syncope, labs actually can help. Seizures cause an elevated lactate, as you all know, right? But seizures will rapidly clear in terms of that lactate. Uh, patients who've had a profound syncopal event might have transaminitis, AKI, other signs of end-organ hyperperfusion. That might distinguish those two uh, disorders. And my fifth tip is related in terms of lactate. Who doesn't love lactate? Uh, in the emergency department, I don't know. Do you guys love lactate? Um, well, one thing that's, uh, I think, of interest and not really all that well disseminated is that you can send cerebral spinal fluid lactate. This is actually a really good test to distinguish bacterial from aseptic meningitis. They are patient in the ED with meningitis. This actually has an area under the curve to predict a bacterial infection of about 98%. It's also elevated in other conditions, stroke, seizures, trauma. But the context here, uh, if you've got someone with suspected infection, can actually make that test very useful. Now, your lab may vary in terms of cutoff concentrations, but a CSF lactate of more than two is really sensitive, and more than four is potentially really specific. And all those cutoffs may be a little bit higher. It's also useful for post-surgical infections. So you've got someone who returns to the ED, a couple of weeks after a cranial surgery, so that actually might help to distinguish from a bacterial from a non-bacterial infection. So those are my top five tips. I hope they're helpful and um, certainly uh, happy to, to give some more tips uh, in the future if, if you think that might be useful as well. Brandon, those are wonderful tips. Let's now jump into your talk. Thank you. Hi, everyone. My name is Brandon Foreman. I'm a neurointensivist at the University of Cincinnati, and I'm going to be talking about status epilepticus. So here are my disclosures, none particularly relevant to the content of this talk. And we've got a couple of learning objectives. One is to define subtypes of status epilepticus. Uh, I want to talk about why status epilepticus is a medical emergency and really focus in on current treatment options for status epilepticus. In 2017, the International League Against Epilepsy changed the terminology that we use to describe seizures. And many of the uh, classifications of seizures that we all know and love and grew up with have completely changed. And uh, so generalized convulsive status epilepticus now is termed focal to bilateral tonic-clonic status epilepticus. Uh, other seizure types, such as uh, complex partial status epilepticus or simple 
partial status epilepticus have also been re-termed as focal onset. That's really where that partial comes into play. Simple means awareness is preserved. Complex means there's impaired awareness. And you can have focal onset seizures with motor components and with non-motor components, sometimes referred to as non-convulsive status epilepticus in this case. So I keep saying status epilepticus. Let's jump back to basics and talk about what is the definition of status epilepticus. And this also was reformulated in 2015 in a paper that redefined what uh, status epilepticus is. Uh, and the way they define this was it's a condition that results from either the failure of the mechanisms that typically terminate seizures and the vast majority in spontaneously within three minutes, or it's the initiation of mechanisms that lead to abnormally prolonged seizures. It's a condition that can have long-term consequences, including neuronal cell death or neuronal injury. And they introduced a concept called T1 and T2. These are time dimensions by which these things occur. Time one is the point at which a seizure moves from being something that will spontaneously end on its own to being very likely to be sustained or to become status epilepticus. Time point two or T2 is the time point at which you begin to experience the long-term effects, consequences of that prolonged or ongoing seizure. And when you talk about status epilepticus, you now have to distinguish between different subtypes, which are gonna have different T1s and T2s. So focal to bilateral tonic-clonic status epilepticus has a T1 of five minutes. So at five minutes, a generalized convulsive uh, seizure or focal to bilateral tonic-clonic seizure is gonna be much more likely to self-sustain and enters into the definition of status epilepticus, time one at five minutes. T2, in contrast, is 30 minutes. And we know from a lot of the translational work that 30 minutes tends to be when you start to see neuronal injury, neuronal cell death as a result of these seizures. When it comes to focal motor status epilepticus with impaired awareness, typically the T1 is 10 minutes. So now seizures have to really take a much longer time before they become self-sustaining. T2 is somewhere beyond 60 minutes. And that's really important. This means that focal motor status epilepticus with impaired awareness has an undefined but certainly much longer T2 before you get to neuronal injury and long-term consequence. And where that occurs might be different for different kinds of patients and different causes of focal motor status. And then when you talk about non-convulsive status epilepticus or focal non-motor status epilepticus, again, we think of T1 as probably being more than 10 minutes. Our definition of T2 though, we really don't know. Uh, there's maybe some evidence that when you get to 20% of a 60-minute reporting, you start to impact long-term outcome. But in terms of when that T1 or even T2 are, it's not well studied. So we're going to start by really honing in on focal to bilateral tonic-clonic status epilepticus. What we all know and love is generalized convulsive status epilepticus. The annual incidence of this is about 150,000 in the U.S. The worldwide incidence is 10 to 40 per 100,000 uh, people. 
the direct cost for a hospitalization for status epilepticus is extraordinarily expensive, somewhere in the order of $4 billion US dollars, and that's probably 10 years ago. And that's higher than the costs for things like hemorrhagic stroke and CHF exacerbation. Nearly two-thirds of focal to bilateral tonic-clonic status occurs in patients who have a history of prior seizures, so patients presumably with epilepsy, and half of those actually have inadequate drug levels. So these are your patients with epilepsy who forgot to take a dose of their short-acting seizure drug, they forgot their levetiracetam that morning, or they stopped taking their medication for some reason. But there are a lot of other causes, and those causes are considered to be, those other causes are considered to be provoked or acute symptomatic, meaning the patients had an ischemic stroke and they come in with seizures, or they've had a hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy and develop focal bilateral tonic-clonic status. And you can see the breakdown on this uh, paper uh, from Trinka et al. some years ago that shows you the different causes of status epilepticus. Uh, but the most common being low anti-seizure drug levels. Um, and in red is the mortality. And just very quickly, look at the variability of mortality and how it ranges based on the underlying disorder. That's really important. When it comes to focal to bilateral tonic-clonic status, uh, there is a big impact. Mortality is somewhere between 50 and 30%. A quarter of patients have deterioration in their overall functioning. One of 10 require long-term care. Many develop epilepsy, although probably 40% is a low number. I suspect this is closer to 80 or 90% based on some of the literature surrounding new-onset refractory status and other disorders. But a lot of these people are impaired for a long time. And importantly, uh, outcome is related to both delays in treatment and duration of seizures. As you can see here on this graph, that kind of aggregates a couple of different concepts when it comes to status epilepticus. Mortality is in the bottom, and you can see that the proportion of patients who experience mortality goes up as seizures uh, are longer and longer in duration. The other thing that happens during status epilepticus is the body is profoundly affected. So typically, the onset of seizures and as seizures become self-sustaining, there's a huge sympathetic overdrive that increases temperature, blood pressure, uh, creates uh, tachyarrhythmias, increasing minute ventilation, pulmonary edema, um, and then induces acidosis, rhabdomyolysis, hyperglycemia, stress response. And as you get to the point where status epilepticus enters T2, you start to have homeostatic failure. The body can't maintain that sympathetic overdrive. And that's the point where you get hypotension. You get increased cardiac mortality, hypoxia and respiratory failure, uh, arrhythmias because of metabolic derangements, et cetera. And you have this impacting secondarily all of this neuronal injury that the seizure itself is actually creating as well. So how do you manage this medical emergency? Time is of the essence, and therefore, a lot of the medication treatment uh, has focused in the pre-hospital early emergency department uh, course. But thankfully, we've actually got class one, grade A evidence for what to do in that setting. In 2001, there was an important study from Aldridge et al. that randomized 205 patients to getting placebo, 
in the field, in the ambulance, for uh, focal to bilateral tonic-clonic status epilepticus versus uh, IV lorazepam or diazepam. And 60% of the patients had their status epilepticus resolved by the time they got to the emergency department in the, uh, in the lorazepam group, compared to only one in five in the placebo group. What's interesting is that although the dose of lorazepam in this study, four milligrams, seems pretty high, and we see a lot of people with respiratory failure in the setting of too many benzos, right? But in this study, all cause complications, including respiratory failure, were actually cut in half because of the adequate treatment of the status epilepticus early. Now, this was followed up uh, some years later, a little more than 10 years later, by the Rampart study. And this was a really, really huge study with nearly 900 patients. And they looked at that same IV lorazepam, four milligrams for adults and children, more than 40 kilos. And they compared it to intramuscular midazolam, 10 milligrams, again, for adults and, and kids, more than 40 kilograms. And three quarters of the patients had their status epilepticus resolved on arrival. Now, in the Ativan group, that number was 63%, very similar to the Aldrich study. So midazolam, in fact, was not only non-inferior, which was the primary outcome for that study, but it was actually superior. And it's superior for a number of other reasons. Doesn't require an IV, which may be difficult to establish in a patient who's got clinical convulsions, right? And it doesn't have to be refrigerated, which in the back of an ambulance, it's a big deal. So your first line of defense, it's benzodiazepines in whatever form, in whatever route you can get them in. And this class one evidence comes from two really good randomized control trials. Now, once you've got your first line agent, you've got to move on. Those first line agents are short acting. They're going to wear off. Seizures are going to recur. Status, epileptus, uh, status epilepticus is going to recur. And so the recommendations to very, very quickly, if patients continue to seize after the initial benzodiazepine, is to start a second line agent at an adequate dose. And most patients, they're getting the second line agent um, after the benzodiazepine is administered. What is the second line agent that you want to give? That's a traditional anti-seizure drug, so it's got a longer uh, mechanism of action. And it's really targeting the seizures, not necessarily uh, suppressing the brain in general, um, which benzodiazepines do by hitting GABA receptors everywhere. And for a long time, it was unclear as to what to do. A lot of people used what they're used to using, whatever that may be, whether it was phenytoin or levetiracetam. And so in 2019, the ESAT trial came out. This is a really important study in the ED of patients who had status epilepticus, focal to bilateral tonic-clonic status epilepticus, who failed the first line benzodiazepine. And they randomized patients to one of three medications, levetiracetam, Depakote or valproic acid, and phosphonatoin. All three of these were dosed in, in reasonable doses. Uh, for phosphonatoin, it's what you're used to probably, 20 milligrams per kilogram or 20 phosphonatoin or phenytoin equivalents per kilogram. For Depakote, it's probably a little higher than maybe you use, 40 mg per kg. And then Keppra was dosed at 60 mg per kg. This is much more than the typical, we loaded a gram of Keppra dose that you might hear. All of these agents at those doses, and each of them were bolused over about 10 minutes, were all as equally effective. 45 to 47% uh, of patients had cessation of status epilepticus. Uh, when you look at the overlap and the density histogram, as you can see down here at the bottom, you can see there's absolutely no separation of these different groups. 
in terms of their treatment success. And what's really interesting is the safety analysis, uh, safety analysis rather, which showed no differences in the side effect profiles of these three medications, indicating that relatively quick boluses, adequately dosed anticonvulsants, is going to give you the same result and be nearly as safe, regardless of what you use. Um, and that's really important because that means the providers in the ED have choices, right? And they're all going to work again, if you dose them the same. Now, these medications are all different. And so it is important to consider some of the pharmacokinetic and, and metabolic uh, pathways that these go through, because there are some patients where you want to make a nuanced decision as a provider. And you can do that very quickly if you know these medications pretty well, knowing that all three of them are gonna work. So some big differences to highlight, right? The dose we talked about, 24 year 60 for phenytoin, valparate, and levotiracetam respectively. Um, all of these were bolused over 10 minutes for ESET, although traditionally phenytoin or phosphenytoin, you do drip in a little bit slower than the other two. Phenytoin and Depakote, protein bound, hepatically cleared. And the reason why that's important is because you got other medications, perhaps in someone's system, their transplant patient, HIV patient, right? These can interfere. And phenytoin's an inducer, Depakote's an inhibitor. They're going to do different things to those drug levels. But we're talking about managing status. This is a one-time bolus, and you don't have to worry about this unless they're going on these medications long-term. When it comes to that quick bolus, though, phenytoin can cause respiratory depression, cardiac arrhythmias, and hypotension. Be aware. These patients should be monitored highly with standard uh, vital signs measured continuously, but you're already doing that because this patient is having prolonged or recurrent seizures. Phenytoin can cause digital ischemia or purple glove syndrome if you have a bad IV and it extravasates. So it's something to be aware of as well. But in general, Depakote and Levitrastin don't have that problem. And both Valproate and Keppra seem to be relatively safe from, again, that respiratory and, and mental status depression standpoint. So this is safe to give in your fragile elderly patients, uh, probably more uh, above and beyond phenytoin. So some clear differences, but ultimately, in terms of your second line of defense, pick your poison. You've got choices, but do it quickly. This is really, really critical. Your first line medication uh, is going to work anywhere from 50 to 60% of the time, most likely. Uh, and that's a benzodiazepine. But by the time you get to your second line drug and your third line drug, if patients continue to have status epilepticus, that response gives you diminishing returns. So the first one is the best one, and the faster you get it in, the more it works. Unfortunately, it's not always the way things happen. In an EMS uh, review or study uh, survey uh, of different EMS-based programs, one in five actually defined what we're talking about, focal to bilateral tonic-clonic status, per the guidelines we've been talking about. Most, 94%, recommended lower doses of intramuscular midazolam, the Rampart recommends. And 10 milligrams seems like a lot, sure, but it works. It's superior to Ativan, right? 94% recommended lower doses, and uh, at best half received of uh, patients received any pre-hospital treatment at all. And hospital transport takes at least half an hour, right? You're entering T2 if you don't get that stuff treated up front. When it comes to the hospital, a lot of us have treatment protocols, and you should because that gets the treatment uh, uh, done quicker, done correctly, 
But in one study of hospital-based treatment protocols, again, surveying a lot of different protocols across multiple different hospitals, somewhere about half of patients weren't treated per protocol. There were delays in treatment uh, in a variety of times. Uh, additional benzos were given prior to that ESET second medication. And a lot of patients didn't get effective dosing. So one or two milligrams of Ativan, a gram of Keppra. Those treatment delays lead to longer seizures. Ineffective dosing leads to more refractory seizures. And the more you're throwing stuff at patients, the less the return you get uh, on those treatments. The best line of defense is a good offense. Have an adequate protocol. Everyone knows what to do. And everyone's giving what is uh, both effective and appropriate from a dosing standpoint. Here's a sample algorithm that's from our Taming the Shrew website here at University of Cincinnati. Uh, and what you can see is the time frame is quick. You got five minutes to give first line therapy. Within the next five minutes, you're hanging your second line. And by 30 minutes, you know whether those seizures have stopped or not. Now, we've been talking about generalized convulsive status epilepticus or bilateral tonic clonic status epilepticus. I want to switch. And I want to talk about focal motor and non-convulsive status epilepticus. And I'm going to lump these two things together. We're talking about focal motor status epilepticus, usually with impaired awareness. These are patients who have one side of their body that's twitching and shaking, and they're having behavioral arrest. They're not paying attention to you. They don't seem to be able to speak or follow commands, maybe, or they're confused. And then non-motor or non-convulsive status epilepticus. This is the most common seizure type uh, within the ICU, within the hospital setting. And usually when we see this, there's very little motor manifestation, maybe some very subtle twitching of the face or a finger, um, maybe some eye deviation or even head deviation. But without EEG, these are impossible to diagnose. How common is this stuff? It's hard to study, right? What I can tell you is that the majority of focal motor and oncovulsive seizures as opposed to bilateral focal to bilateral tonic clonic status are provoked. So as opposed to patients with epilepsy, half of whom had inadequate drug levels, coming into the ED with focal to bilateral tonic clonic status, the majority of patients with focal status are from a provoked cause. Um, uh, perhaps they've had a stroke in the past. Maybe they have a new problem. But these aren't necessarily just your epilepsy patients uh, who missed a dose of their uh, outpatient meds. Now, in much of the past literature that talk about the burden, particularly of non-convulsive seizures in the status epilepticus, there was very little consistency in how that was defined. And that poses a problem. But there was a recent study, uh, a population-based study out of Salzburg that estimated the incidence of overall status epilepticus that was within our range of 10 to 40 per 100,000, right? And the incidence of non-convulsive status epilepticus comprised to 12 of those 100,000. Uh, and so it's about a third to a half of the overall burden or incidence of status epilepticus. Now, that's really important because it's a prevalent or incident disease. And a lot of patients who have non-convulsive status may have also had uh, focal bilateral tonic-clonic status or focal motor status that progressed. And I showed you that uh, chart earlier of how status epilepticus progresses and the motor manifestations may start overtly, 
But after some amount of time, there's an electroclinical association. And after focal to bilateral tonic-clonic status, 14% of patients continue to have non-convulsive status. When that happens, it doubles the risk for death. And it's associated with a, a distinct refractoriness to medication. So by the time you've seized long enough, your status has been long enough to where you no longer have motor manifestations, those seizures particularly are very refractory and have a much higher morbidity mortality. Among those with non-convulsive status too, about a quarter were stuporous or comatose. And that case fatality rate associated with that uh, uh, mental status was about 50% versus only 5-10% in patients who actually were awake as they were having these uh, focal non-motor or non-convulsive seizures. So the bottom line here is that non-convulsive status epilepticus is worse than, from a prognostic standpoint, a focal motor status epilepticus. And non-convulsive status epilepticus with coma is worse than non-convulsive status epilepticus in an awake patient. Now, while focal motor status may be clinically apparent, non-convulsive status requires EG. You have to have EG of some kind to diagnose this. Now, I mentioned that population-based study in Salzburg uh, was able to define the incidence of non-convulsive status, and part of that reason is they defined a criteria for non-convulsive seizures, which is very convenient. That's called the Salzburg criteria. And the idea is you use EG to define whether or not there are seizures, and that, that Definition now has been standardized using the Salzburg criteria, and you can see the, the flow sheet there. Uh, but in the interest of time, I'm not going to go through all the detail. The important part is that that also plays into our definitions uh, of what electrographic or non-convulsive status epilepticus uh, is defined as. And it's defined as electrographic seizures that are fulfilling the Salzburg criteria, lasting for more than 10 continuous minutes or for more than 20% of any 60-minute recording or 12 minutes in aggregate over an hour. That's what defines non-convulsive status epilepticus based purely on EG. How do you diagnose this stuff, particularly if it takes a little bit of time to hook up EG or your shop doesn't have a 24-7 tech? There is some new technology now that allows you to do point-of-care EG. And I mention this because I think it's an important tool when you're talking about delays to treatment creating longer seizure duration, creating more drug refractoriness. Diagnosis is really, really critical. And in many patients, again, with non-convulsive status epilepticus, particularly, it's hard to diagnose. They look like a patient in front of you who's comatose or postictal if they uh, presented with focal bilateral tonic-clonic status. So point-of-care EG is a, a viable alternative. Usually this looks like a restricted electrode array that you can put on a bedside. Uh, one device was actually studied and showed good interator agreement with the standard of CARE 21 uh, uh, electrode array. And when you see epileptiform discharges that early, it really tells you that non-convulsive seizures or status epilepticus are a risk for that patient. It takes five minutes to put uh, this particular device on. It's very, very quick for most patients, uh, regardless of the system that you're using. Uh, and there was a clinical study called the DECIDE study, which is a prospective observational study that really highlighted how quickly this can be put on relative to continuous or routine EG. And when you do this, within five or 10 minutes, you're getting an answer. Is this patient having non-convulsive status epilepticus or not there in your resuscitation bed? As it turns out, that number is about 10% of folks 
Um, and the ability to change your management happens about one in five uh, patients who are monitored with this kind of technology. So how do you treat this? I gave you a bunch of class one grade A evidence for focal to bilateral tonic-clonic status. Those patients are coming into your resuscitation bay and you've got five minutes and you know what to do. It's a little bit more nuanced for focal motor status epilepticus with impaired awareness or non-convulsive status epilepticus. But remember our T1 is more than 10 minutes and our T2 is more than an hour. And so you've got time. And I'm a neurologist by training. I like time to think. Uh, and so I have an algorithm here that's a little more complicated, but I think it makes some sense to consider because, again, you, you've got a little bit of time to consider. it. Now, I should say before I get into this algorithm a little bit that the caveat here is this status epileptic is still warrants treatment and it warrants it fast. But you don't have five or 10 minutes, you've really got 10 minutes to an hour or so to really decide, okay, what do we need to do for this patient? So the first question always relates to context with these patients. And the first thing I consider is, is sedation something that they can have? Or is sedation something I really don't want to give them? So if someone has focal motor status, epilepticus of impaired awareness or non-convulsive status, my first question is, can I sedate them or do I need to try to avoid sedation? And when I do that, when I make that decision, it drives what I'm treating patients with. If someone's intubated in my ICU with focal motor status, I can give them a benzodiazepine or whatever dose I want. Usually I do restrict the dose because they're critically ill, but I can give them those medications without worrying about compromising their airway. On the other hand, if you're on a neurologic floor, for instance, and you begin having focal motor status with impaired awareness, sedation is maybe not what I want. I don't want you to come to me for an airway watch. And so I might give a bolus of an anti-seizure medication uh, up front and try to break the status of epilepticus without overly sedating patients. The quicker acting the medication, the better, of course. What's the response at that point? Did the seizure stop? Did the status epilepticus stop? you have an answer. You can continue the medication that actually worked. What was the response? Did the status epilepticus continue? Are they still arousable, awake? You've got a little more time. Give a second agent. If you're worried about it, see if there's neuronal injury. MRI can be very helpful. And in some, uh, in some case series, up to 50% of patients have MRI evidence of neuronal injury that might drive you to be more aggressive, but they have preserved level of arousal preserve vital functions. Again, you've got the luxury of being able to add a second agent quickly to see if you can get that response. And then on the other hand, if you have continued status epilepticus and you begin to have decreasing level of arousal and with it, impairment of vital functions, loss of the ability to protect the airway, need for pressors or other therapies, that's when you start entering your pathway to be more aggressive, like you would for focal bilateral generalized tonic-clonic status epilepticus. The timing's context-specific. The intensity is patient-specific. So you have the luxury of a little more time, but you still need to act fast and take into account a lot more than you do for focal to bilateral tonic-clonic status. Now, the big elephant in the room here is I haven't talked about a third-line agent which is typically regarded to be anesthesia. 
Well, the reason why I didn't mention that is on purpose. There's a lot of controversy about this. When do you start anesthesia? Does it actually cause harm rather than benefit? Most recommendations for focal to bilateral tonic-clonic status epilepticus, generalized convulsive status epilepticus, do advocate for progressing to a third line, inducing anesthesia uh, quickly if the status does not stop after a second agent. So you've gotten benzos in the field, you've loaded someone up with levetiracetam the minute they wheel in the door because it's been five minutes, and if they're still in status five minutes later, you're intubating and putting them on propofol, midazolam, whatever anesthetic of your choice. But the situation is more complex, as we mentioned, when it comes to focal motor status epilepticus with impaired awareness or non-convulsive status epilepticus. So it's not the right form to be provocative. I get that. But the right answer is just, I would listen to your patient's airway when it comes to anesthesia. That's sort of the algorithm I would advocate for. If a patient continues to have focal bilateral tonic-clonic status in front of you as you're loading that second agent, most clinicians are gonna move to secure the airway on that patient for the most part. post respiratory depression, respiratory depression from the phenytoin you're given, uh, not being able to actually measure vital signs reliably because they continue to have massive seizures in front of you is going to warrant RSI and probably post-intubation sedation, right? So listen to the airway from a clinical standpoint. You need to get the first-line agent and the second-line agent in and get them in in time and in adequate doses. That's got to be the focus because that's where evidence is. Now, if a patient is having very frequent focal motor seizures, continuous focal motor status epilepticus, non-convulsive status epilepticus, and they start to impair their vital functions, right? Securing the airway is a clinical decision. So in both cases, definitive control of the status epilepticus can proceed through the use of anesthesia, but allow the clinical situation to guide that escalation rather than purely adhering to algorithm protocols because those need to be bounded in the evidence, right? Class one evidence for focal bilateral tonic-clonic status epilepticus is benzos, second line agent, which could be caprophenitone or valproic acid. For focal motor status epilepticus, impaired awareness, non-convulsive status epilepticus, you've got a little bit more time to consider how to treat those patients. And you can certainly start with the benzodiazepine or something sedating if you can get away with it. But in many of those patients, you don't want to put them through that necessarily. And you've got the luxury of a quick acting anti-seizure drug. And then evaluate the response. What's the context? How is that progressing? and move forward from there, reserving the escalation of care that you would do very quickly for focal to bilateral tonic-clonic status epilepticus for those patients who are really showing that they need it. So with that, I'm gonna stop, and hopefully that helps and doesn't muddy the waters too much, but gives you some of the idea of the nuance of treating this, uh, this stuff, but also the emergent nature of doing so. And in really refining your hospital protocols, getting everyone on the same page, making sure you're adhering to the evidence, but also paying attention to the context um, and listening to your patient clinically, you can really make a, a difference in ending the status epilepticus while limiting some of the complications of morbidity and ultimately improving the outcome of these patients that are coming through your door. Thank you so much. I appreciate your time. Take care and have a great day. Well, look, Brandon, thank you very, very much for that wonderful talk and your top five pearls. I'm going to finish with one last thing, if that's okay. Now, I ask every guest the same question. 
And that is, if I could bring you back on my time machine to visit your junior self, just leaving university, about to start your career, what have you gained so far in your experience? What what one piece of advice would you give your junior self just uh, starting their career? Yeah, that's a good question. I think uh, you know, there's a lot of advice certainly that I can think of, but one of the things that I, I think is really important when you get in a setting where you're training with people, you're very close to people, you're working closely with people. Uh, you know, I I wish that in in retrospect, uh, I got together outside of the clinical environment with folks more regularly as a group, uh, enhancing that I think uh, that collaborative spirit, that that friendship between these huge groups of people that we end up working with, that goes for my training, but also I think. Uh, as you enter faculty, but uh, you know, that's your family, right? And, and it's important to spend family time, but I think it's important to get to know folks outside of the, the work environment because you know, you have to band together for some of this clinical care in a way that uh, kind of transcends your normal just uh, interactions at work. Brandon, that is wonderful, wonderful advice. Thank you very much for joining me today. Absolutely, thanks for having me. So many, many thanks again to Brandon for the wonderful talk, the wonderful pearls of wisdom, and also the life advice. Now, remember, you can watch the lecture in its entirety for free at www.continuous.com forward slash LP forward slash St. Mungo's. And we'll have another lecture up there in a fortnight's time. Until then, please take care.